This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. You're listening to the Happy as a Mother podcast, and today there is something so exciting that's happening. We are celebrating the anniversary of the Happy as a Mother podcast. Guys, it's been a year. This time last year, I was scrambling. I was Googling how the heck to start a podcast. All these Amazon boxes were showing up on my doorstep with random equipment that I didn't know how to use. But I had a mission and a clear vision. And that was this, to provide a space for moms to learn and grow that is non-judgmental that acknowledges both the amazing blessings of motherhood, but also the taboo hardships that very few moms speak openly about so that you guys know that you are not alone in those dark and hard moments in motherhood. And let me tell you, I have loved every single moment that we've shared together this year. You've invited me in to your motherhood journey with you, and I've been able to share mine in return. It has been such a special journey that I'm so grateful and appreciative for. So guess what? Today, we're going to celebrate. We're going to look back over the five most downloaded episodes of the year, and the topics include mommy rage, boundaries, independent play, the mental load, and intrusive thoughts. I had no idea the growing pains that I was going to encounter in motherhood. Man, this gig is hard. Let's look back on these top five episodes of the year to support you on your motherhood journey. And make sure to stay tuned to the very end for some exciting news on an amazing giveaway being offered to celebrate. Welcome to the Happy as a Mother podcast, where we are dedicated to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host and registered psychotherapist, Erica Jossa. Let's work together in letting go of shame and guilt, accepting where we are in our journey, and moving towards becoming the women we want to be. We will hear from experts, learn practical tips, and listen in on honest conversations. Please note that the information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not replace the advice of your healthcare provider. Okay, let's dive in. First up, we have Dr. Asherina Reem. She was the first interview I launched on the podcast, episode number two, after my first intro show, and we were diving into the topic of understanding mommy rage. I remember this moment so clearly. I was fangirling out, excited to meet her. She was serious goals in terms of the mommy mental health world as I was recently starting out on Instagram. And the coolest thing is now she's grown to be one of my closest friends in this crazy digital world of Instagram. Postpartum rage is something that a lot I mean, a lot of moms experience. There's so much shame and guilt surrounding it that it rarely gets talked about. There is such a need for conversations around this topic that I'm actually putting some of the finishing touches on a mommy rage guide to help support you in this feeling and in this reaction because so many of you have reached out to me about how 
distressing it feels to react in uncharacteristic ways. Let's catch a snippet of my interview with Dr. Asherina Reem about mummy rage. Okay, when it comes to mommy rage, we talked about it's kind of more of a symptom possibly of postpartum or of maybe lack of support, sleep deprivation, other things going on. Is it something that you would say is common? I mean, it depends on what where we're talking about and what we're talking about. That's uh, it's hard to say, you know, what's common because I from my experience, I, I don't know that there are statistics on the prevalence of rage, the symptom in particular, mm-hmm. um, r- rather than, you know, you can go through, how, you know, what is the incidence of postpartum anxiety or depression? And the research will demonstrate that and postpartum.net um, or postpartum support international has that published. However, just the incidence of the rage, I don't know that that has been published anywhere personally. Mm-hmm. I know right. that quite a few moms will report that. I mean, even if you go on social media and if you post something about it, you'll see how moms will chime in. And I think the difficulty about this and kind of quantifying this or whatever we want to say is that people don't know that that is necessarily a symptom of a perinatal mood disorder. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about it, they'll say, I didn't even know that was a thing, but I do know that when I had my child, I felt really irritated and angry and I didn't know what was wrong with me. I thought I was going crazy. So it's not, it's really hard for a couple of things. Moms don't even know that it exists and providers are not asking the appropriate questions to identify Mm -hmm. it. So it makes it really difficult to know that there's an issue if no one's talking about the issue. Right. And it's, I don't know if it's a matter of whether it's common or not as much as how when you talk about it, it resonates with people, right? So it gets shared a lot. It gets talked about a lot. Those posts go somewhat viral or whatever, if you will, because it just gives words to somebody's experience, right? And it it may not speak to like the prevalence, like you said, or how common it is, but it does speak to the fact that being open about it, especially as a practitioner, but as a mom to a mom, gives words to and helps people feel seen and recognized when we talk about these symptoms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So when we're talking about how we deal with mommy rage, what would be some kind of practical tips or things that we could work towards? I think of mostly anything. And when we're talking about symptoms, it's exploring that symptom. We can say like, okay, if you're, you know, it, it would be simple to just say if you're having, you know, if you're having sleep deprivation, just go sleep. But with something like this, when a mom is reporting being irritable or experiencing anger or rage or whatever it may be, that kind of, we're just scratching the surface with what's going on. And this to me is like, I, I think I created a post. I don't know. I, I'm not saying I think I did. I created a post <laughs> a little while back that said, you know, symptoms are signals. They tell us something. They're telling a story. And we need to, it's up to us to really explore what that is. And if I'm feeling irritable more often than not, I need to figure out what in my life is off. So often, like if I'll give you an example and I'll describe it that way. If it's like I am snapping at my husband every time he leaves a dish out or whatever it is, it's not about the dish, Mm -hmm. right? It's not about he didn't do something. There is an underlying feeling that I'm experiencing that maybe I am not communicating or maybe I don't even have the awareness, but it's up to us to kind of dig a little deeper and figure out what that is. Is there a sense of resentment? Do we feel like there is an imbalance in the responsibilities in our home? Do we feel isolated? Mm -hmm. 
Are we feeling a lack of support? Do we feel unheard or do we feel dismissed often by the people in our lives? Do we have a high needs child that maybe we need more support with, but we're not asking for it? Um, There could be a number. This is really limitless, but it's up to us to understand what that is. What is causing the tension in our lives? What is causing that irritability or triggering, triggering that irritability and then tending to whatever that is. So we really have to figure out what it is and then figure out what the supports are that we need to put in place to kind of relieve some of that tension. I've really been leaning into ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy lately Mm -hmm. and learning more about it. But for this purpose, like we don't need to judge the fact that we're ragey or, you know, frustrated or irritable. We don't need to try to avoid it or push it away. If we just like sit with it for a second and say, what the heck is going on here? Right? Like if you just Mm -hmm. stop and look at it and, and inquire like, what, what is my body trying to tell me? What is it I need? And just kind of honor and listen to that thing, that symptom and what it's communicating to us. Then we're not in this inner struggle and turmoil and, and judging ourselves. We go into a sort of a proactive brainstorming, like what is it I need? And what, like, what is my body or whatever telling me and advocating for in this moment? You know, right. I need support from my husband or I need for my partner to get up in the middle of the night with the baby so that I can get some rest or I need whatever. And then we go into more of a problem solving mode rather than just like a fighting and tension with ourselves. you know? Absolutely. No, that's that's completely accurate. I think we often do place that judgment on ourselves and especially with this, you know, like that feeling of, wow, I am, you know, I'm going to use something I hear a lot. I'm a monster. I'm a monster for feeling this way. And no one's going to understand me. Or um, a lot of moms will say, I don't know why I'm experiencing this. And that's because they're maybe are not comfortable or familiar with doing that self-exploration. That takes a little bit of work. And I know, I mean, I, I feel like it's fairly easy for me because I'm a psychologist. And I right, do this all day right. long with people. Right. I do this with my husband. <laughs> it's like, I, you know, we're working on X. Tell me more about that kind of thing all day long. So it's just really important to start getting familiar with yourself, your needs. When you need a break, it can be something as simple as just taking a break that will help relieve some of that pressure and that tension. Yeah. And I'm thinking about it as you're talking, like what was it in those early moments that I really needed? You know, like when I was in Mm -hmm. that you know, fresh newborn stage, lack of sleep, obviously we all need sleep and sleep is something that, you know, our world revolves around with a newborn, but isn't always realistic to get. And I had support and I had many things. And I think that for some people, if they are going through like a very serious postpartum depression or anxiety, uh, many of their needs may even be met and they may still have these feelings as well, right? So I I think there is problem solving and getting the support. And then there's also going to be, I don't know, do you know what I'm saying? Like, Yes. And you know, what complicates things, and I think there's another level to this, is that if you're experiencing both postpartum depression and anxiety, there's a couple of levels to this. So when, when someone's depressed, oftentimes we tell them to get the supports they need, right? Become more active, take breaks, do all these things, but that requires relying on other people. And um, 
often if someone is experiencing anxiety, the last thing they want to do is rely on other people. So now Mm -hmm. they're kind of in this catch 22 where I'm feeling, you know, down and I know I need to take care of myself, but the thought of doing those things causes me great anxiety. And I think it's going to be really important to seek the support you need. Cause obviously I can only provide so much education on, you know, for example, Instagram, but it takes a real exploration that can be done with a professional to figure out what are some realistic things to do, but also exploring that a bit deeper, you know, whether it's cognitively or it's mindfully with your body and realizing what is it that I need to do. It's not just, you know, tasks like go out and get your nails done or something like that. It's going to be much deeper than that kind of approach to helping yourself relieve that pressure, that tension. I, and I'm thinking back on my own experience and I'm going to be honest with you every time this, this is might sound crazy to some and very relatable to others. But every time I see a newborn, I don't like, Oh, that's so cute. That's not my experience. And my husband and I are both in the same boat because it was so hard for Mm -hmm. us um, for a number of reasons. You know, the needs of my son are a lot of grief. I think it was a very big transition for us. And it was like a dark, a very dark time. And I remember, I can, I have memories of days just like in my brain, ingrained in my brain and what they looked like. And I think part of that irritability or that transition that we don't talk enough about that causes that sense of overwhelm is the grief we experience. We were the most spontaneous people Mm -hmm. before having a child. Like, I mean, let's get up and go. One night at 10 p.m., I shared this long, long ago on my feed. Um, 10 p.m., my husband looked at me and he goes, it was actually before we became married. He looked at me and he goes, let's go to Vegas and let's get married. We packed up one bag, put it in, you know, the car, jumped in the car. And oh my drove. goodness. We're, we're in Arizona. You know, we drove there. I'm going to, you know, not, not to draw that assault. We didn't get married there. <laughs> I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't commit to it, but we were just those right. people, you know, we did whatever. And, um, that was something we didn't prepare ourselves for. It's like, we, we thought we had this expectation that we would have a child and we would just pick up and go like we were. And it wasn't like that. And that doesn't make us, you know, hate our experience. That doesn't make us resentful and hateful. It just was a really challenging time. And I think that we don't pay enough attention to that grief and that, um, the sadness that we experience, that sense of loss. And when it just goes untreated and unsaid, and it just tends to build up inside of us. And sometimes that can look like rage. That can look like irritability. Yeah. And when it is communicated, one of the things that I often find is that it's met with this sort of like toxic positivity. Like, and I've done a post on this on my Instagram recently as well. Like, you know, oh my goodness, I have so many things to do. I have to get, like, I have three boys. I have to rotate all of their clothes. They all have grown up a size. I need to go shopping. I need to do, and like the list just goes on and on and on, right? And vocalizing Mm -hmm. some of the weight that you carry or the grief of letting go of who you were before having kids and you vocalize these things. And then you're met with comments like, but you love your kids, right? Like, aren't you so glad to be a mom? Mm-hmm. And you're just like, then the shame and the guilt sets in and you're like, 
well, yeah, like I'm obviously, I'm not saying that I don't love my child. Like I just simply don't enjoy the tasks or the tasks can be overwhelming. Oh, mummy rage. I know that I've had these mummy rage moments and I've come to learn that anger is a distress signal. So if you find that you are irritated or angry, I would encourage you to explore it deeper. Keep an eye out for my mummy rage guide. There are things that you can do to be coping and feeling better. Our next guest, Nedra Tawab, was such a pleasure to interview. She came on episode 11 talking about navigating boundaries in motherhood. Boundaries are essential when it comes to parenting. Boundaries for ourselves, boundaries for how we're interacting with family members, mother-in-laws. I get lots of questions about mother-in-laws and also how we set boundaries for our children or on the expectations for ourselves so that we can preserve self-care, time for ourselves. So many reasons why boundaries are critical in motherhood. Let's hear snippet of my interview with Nedra about boundaries. We unpack a little bit like what is slash what are boundaries and then we're going to move into specifically for moms like the types of, of common struggles that moms have with boundaries. So mm-hmm. but like how would we kind of define it or help people understand what what a boundary is? I define boundaries as a cue for showing or telling people how to treat you, how to operate in your relationships. Boundaries define your roles in your relationship. Um, I think it's a declaration of what is acceptable and what's unacceptable in relationships. It can be so many things and it can look so many ways. I think lots of times when we are thinking about boundaries, we we focus in on what we know, like saying no or, you know, like I mentioned earlier, drawing that line in the sand. But it's also clarifying and letting people know what your needs are, telling them your opinions, um, asking for what you want. Those are also boundaries. It's interesting because as you're talking, I'm hearing that like boundaries are really different for different people Mm -hmm. and they're different in different situations, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. so there's not necessarily a formula for appropriate boundaries that maybe in some cases there are, but Mm -hmm. generally speaking, Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting because I was in, I was like speaking with a client, um, like this week or last week, and we were talking about not like boundaries as a form of self-care and of like preserving yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Like preserving, I don't even know what it is, but like your energy, your own, like having something for yourself at the end of the day, because you've kind of guarded and protected yourself. And the analogy we had used in that session was that like, right now we're like hemorrhaging. It's Mm -hmm. like, we're bleeding and we can't stop the bleed. Like our, our life is kind of being drained and we don't have anything left for ourselves. And how do we stop the bleed? And we were talking about boundaries as being the, the system or the way in which we stop the bleed and we keep our kind of system functioning in a healthy way that we still have energy and things left for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that, you know, boundaries 
you can't have self-care without boundaries. And I think a lot of times when you hear about people being burned out, overwhelmed, poor self-care, to me, that screams there are issues with boundaries. There are some things in your life that you need, may need to set parameters on. There are things you need to say no to. There are things that you need to prioritize, probably mainly you. Um, but there are a lot of things and areas that need boundaries. And I think that we don't think about boundaries as a self-care issue, but it really is the um, the thing holding us back from being able to engage in self-care as mothers, as partners, as friends. Um, it's a boundary issue. And like, who is more burnt out? than like a new mom, really, Mm -hmm. you know, like I think about that time in my own life and I think about like people that I work with and how can we like some practical ways or some, some things that mom can do. And like, I understand you're a mom and I'm a mom and we know what it's like to be in the trenches of that time where there are just these unique kind of demands on you, right? That self-care starts to look very different than it did before baby and even different than when baby is a little bit older and doesn't depend on you as much. So mm-hmm. what are some practical ways kind of in the, that really like new mom stage that we can set some boundaries for self-care, do you think? I think one of the biggest ways that new moms can set boundaries is by being considerate of who you're allowing in your space Um most people speak from experience and they are telling you the best thing based on their experiences. And as a new mom, we are so um, open to mental shifts and we're so, you know, we're craving like that community and that feedback, but actually in some instances, it can cause us to have a lot of burnout and feel overwhelmed because now we're trying to do all of these different things. Like we're trying to cloth diaper and we're trying to um, feed our baby organic food. And we're trying to like all of the opinions of other people. And I think it's very important that you map out a strategy for how you want to be a parent and a reasonable strategy. And that may not be what the folks in your community are suggesting, but you'll have to be able to kind of weave through that information and figure out what works best for you and not what works best for everyone else. Yeah. Yeah, that's a major problem that um, like even when I pulled Instagram about this episode coming up and, and setting boundaries, like advice from other people was one of the top mm-hmm. things that came up. Mm-hmm. Like, how do I navigate unwanted advice from others? How do I set boundaries mm-hmm. with family members, you know, or moms or mother-in-laws who have raised their own children and have their own opinions? Yeah, I think I, I too get a lot of things about mother-in-laws and I think having a clear idea of what type of mother you want to be and relaying your ideas to other people before they're able to say, you should do it this way. Don't even seem like you're open to feedback. And I think so many times we're like, well, what do you think I should do? And then when the person is honest and they say, well, I think you should do it this way. We're like, why are they giving me advice? Well, you asked them, you invited them in. Mm -hmm. Don't invite people into a space that you don't want them to be in. So 
having a clear understanding of how you want to parent makes it a lot easier to push your own agenda. When you're like, I don't know what I want to do. I don't know if I want to breastfeed or formula feed. It makes it a lot easier for people to give you this unsolicited advice. So the first thing I would say is have a clear idea of what you want to do. When people offer that unsolicited advice, develop a statement to say something back that is assertive, that shuts down the invitation for unsolicited feedback. And I think one of those things you could say is, oh, wow, I understand your opinion. You've raised three kids and I'm sure um, all of those things work. We're trying to do it this way. Right. Yeah. What you're describing to me is like, how, um, like I usually have said in other podcasts and I say with clients is having, knowing your mother or like parenting values. So if you mm-hmm. know a value of yours is to breastfeed, or you know that you value independent play and like, you know, teaching your child a certain way, or you guys value whatever it is in the home that you and your partner have worked through that you value then when you are sure of why you're making the decisions that you're making, you are going to be less like impressionable by other people's Mm -hmm. unsolicited advice, number one. Mm -hmm. And two, you're going to be less likely to compare yourself and the way you're parenting your child to like the next mom over at the baby group, you know, who is cloth diapering, but you've decided that that just doesn't work for your family, you know? Mm So knowing those values, having those conversations with your partner, or even just thinking it through and kind of writing them down for yourself, like, why am I making the decisions that I'm making? Why are they important to me? And, you know, having that list kind of forefront of mind when making decisions as a parent is extremely helpful to then set that boundary Mm -hmm. to know this doesn't align with my values. This doesn't align with, you know, what we talked about in terms of how we want to raise our child. And I really appreciate that you're trying to help, but this isn't really in line with, with how we feel about whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to understand the person's perspective. Um, Like I'm, I'm from Detroit, Michigan, which is very cold. And I've moved to North Carolina, which is much warmer. So I remember when I had um, my first daughter, Um, my mom would say the baby needs on socks, right? (laughs) And I'm like, 85 degrees outside, you know, I think the baby would be a little hot. But in a colder climate at that time of year, that sort of thinking makes sense, right? And so I have to consider, oh, wow, well, when she had her kids during the winter time, this was the temperature. And so it made sense to always have a kid bundled up. So she's speaking from a perspective of this is what you do at this time of year that has nothing to do with me. Totally, totally based on their own experience. And like my husband and I, it's interesting. My husband is from Benin, West Africa, and his parents are there and I'm in Toronto. And so my mother-in-law, like they're so, she's so community oriented and I appreciate her so much. Like we have a really great relationship and she came and stayed with us for three months when, with each of our kids when they were born, like such a blessing to have that. Mm -hmm. And uh, like 
so different culturally in how we raise and handle babies and things. And so like they do all of this infant massage stuff after baby's bath and like, you know, kind of like pick up their limbs and do these things. And I'm like, oh my gosh, my baby, you know, and Mm -hmm. it's just so funny. And she always took my lead, but just being like exposed to her motherhood experience and, and a different perspective was also really incredible Mm -hmm. and we had like lots of conversations about how things are done differently and like I'm really um like car seats and all of these different regulations here are a big deal and car Mm -hmm. seats there aren't as much of a big deal so Mm -hmm. having to kind of navigate even these cultural differences um just takes lots of communication and lots of being open and understanding like you said each other's perspective and experience and where each other is coming from When it comes to setting boundaries, I have learned that it takes practice. We have been interacting with people in our lives and with the world in particular ways for what, my 30 something years. So when we decide that we want to do something differently, we've got to be gracious with ourselves and know that it does take time and it takes lots of practice. It's not going to happen overnight. Okay, now we're going to switch gears into our next interview with Brianna Kappa, South Bay Mommy and Me, about fostering independent play. This interview really opened up the idea of child-led play and why it's so critical for our child's development, emotional and learning and cognitive, so many pieces are tied to our child's play. I don't know if you've ever noticed this pattern or not, but my boys will love to play and it starts to get messy or starts to maybe get a little bit too loud or starts to exist in a way that is beyond my comfort level. Maybe it creates anxiety for me or maybe I just want to get in there and help or I want to get in there and tinker and fix or direct the play, or give instruction, so many pieces. And we really unpack why it's important to allow a child to take the lead, to sit with our own anxiety and discomfort around, let's say something like mess, in order for them to learn lessons through play. And it's pretty incredible. It's pretty incredible what happens in their little brains as they are constructing and imagining and doing these things through their play. So let's hear this clip from my episode with Brianna about independent play. Like I've heard it said that play is the work of a child, right? Mm -hmm. And you talk about it. That's Maria Montessori. Is it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's like where, Mm -hmm. um, and like, and also like in our play therapy and at, and at the office at work, we work with a lot of play therapy as well. It's that mm-hmm. um, like kids kind of externalize and process things through in their play, like you were saying. Oh, yeah. So mm-hmm. does that mean that the quality of play differs and matters? And, and how can that look? How would a parent know, for example, if their kid can really play independently or what the quality of their kid's play looks like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. I like to not really judge um, the play based on uh, based on quality. Um, I really think how a child plays is important to uh, in terms that it speaks to where that child is at in that moment. Right? Children are extremely present, and they are going to be expressing exactly what is going on for them in the moment through their play. Um, now. 
The idea of independent play can can be a little confusing because independent play is not necessarily a child playing by themselves for long periods of time. Independent, or what I really like to specify as child-led play, is the child is in charge of the pace of the play, of the content of the play, of how the play moves and shifts and changes. Um, and, and what we like to see as children become older um, is that the the, you know, the, the focus and the attention on one activity gets longer and longer as the child gets older. I would only say like the quality of the play is problematic is, you know, if the child out in social spheres is really disengaged from other children. And I don't mean playing by themselves when other children are playing together. I mean, playing in, in, non-functional ways, maybe kind of spinning around in circles and looking in their own world, right? That would be, um, you know, the quality there would be of concern and we'd want to address that. Or if a child is kind of like a pinball, you know, like a five-year-old who's a pinball and really is struggling to stay regulated in one task of, of playing. And okay, so then there, the quality of play might be something we want to look at and it might be a way that we can actually help promote and support that child's regulation. Mm-hmm. But I really find that that um, this this process really happens naturally, the, and the, the desire to want to lead play and the desire to want to play um, and be in be in charge of their play in this independent way um, is very natural for children. It's actually unnatural for us. We want to be the ones to control it. You know, we control our children's play when we ask questions. When we say, "What are you doing? What color is that?" What shape is that? Where does that go? Oh, that's not right. Put that where it needs to go. Now I've taken the lead. I am completely leading my child's play instead of my child being the being the one in charge. And what this creates is this dynamic where the child feels like, oh, here's another place where I have to make sure that I'm pleasing my parent, mm. right? Because that's, that's the child's mentality. They're not thinking, oh, wow, look at my wonderful parent who's trying to teach me a lesson. Right. <laughs> right? They, don't, they, don't think, they don't think of it like that. They think, gosh, this is my space. This is where I'm supposed to be able to you know, put, put my things out there. And I just need my parent to listen. I just need you to sit and watch and wait and wonder and be curious about me. And I think we all benefit when, when we can implement that just a little bit in our day-to-day lives with our children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Want to get smarter about your health but feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction? We hear a lot about gut health, microbiomes, and other nutrition topics, but taking the time to research these is exhausting. And there's a lot of misinformation out there. The Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast makes it so much easier to get the information you need. With the help of world-leading scientists, the podcast gives you research-based information so you can make informed choices for yourself without pressure and guilt. People are loving Zoe Science and Nutrition. Listener Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others accessing quality information about their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. 
One of the most relentless mental loads is being the juggler of medical appointments. Researching doctors, reading reviews, making phone calls to book appointments, it's a lot of stress when you're already juggling so much invisible labor. That's what makes ZocDoc great for moms. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of highly rated in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments with them online. ZocDoc has doctors of all specialties, including therapists, psychiatrists, and psychologists, with verified patient reviews so you can make sure they check all your boxes. You can find mental health providers who offer in-person appointments, virtual consults, or both, whatever works for you. The typical wait time to see a mental health provider booked on ZocDoc is just four days. Sometimes you can even book same-day appointments. Make juggling appointments easier with ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com slash momwell and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated therapist, psychiatrist, or psychologist today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash momwell. ZocDoc.com slash momwell. Mom rage often leads us to feeling ashamed, but the truth is that our rage doesn't mean we're bad moms. In fact, anger is a sign from our bodies that our needs aren't being met. As moms and therapists, Dr. Asherine Areem's psyched mommy and I understand mom rage. We know that we all lose our cool sometimes. And we also know that with the right tools and strategies in place, those moments happen less often. We've teamed up and combined our years of experience to create All The Rage, raising kids with less anger and more connection, a course designed to be your go-to resource for preventing and handling your anger. We dive into what causes your anger, how it impacts your body, how to reframe your thinking, and how to stay calm in triggering moments. And because we are all human, we also include strategies for repairing after we inevitably lose our cool. In honor of Maternal Mental Health Week, you can save $20 on the course with promo RAGE20 this week only. Don't miss out on your chance to save and make a positive change. Head to momwell.com slash rage and save with code RAGE20. That's momwell.com slash rage, code RAGE20. So I have a little bit of like a personal example when I'm talking, like sort of what I mean in terms of like quality of play, because I think you touched on it as like, okay, so, and I think you had seen this in my stories before we've dialogued about this a little bit, but I had this like playroom and, you know, it's like the, the playroom in the basement where all the toys go, like all the things that all the people buy. And so Mm -hmm. it became this space where um, the shelves were just like overpacked and just like jammed Mm -hmm. full of all kinds of toys that are like really overstimulated lots of lights, lots of sounds, lots of, lots of just stuff. Right. And Mm -hmm. so when we would go into this like basement playroom, this playroom to play, I noticed that it just became about pulling things off the shelves and kind of throwing them around. And to me, that's not, there's no like real quality or substance to that play. Right. There, there is though. They're telling, their play is telling us something. Mm. Their play is is telling us I'm disorganized. Interesting. I'm dysregulated. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, it's absolutely meaningful. He, they're saying what is happening is too stimulating for me, and maybe I want to make a mess of it. Maybe I want to show you, mom, that things feel a little messy inside. Mm-hmm. That's how we read and, and try to make sense and understand 
um, what our children are trying to communicate. And we can, we can absolutely support that, right. right? Gosh, I see that when we come down to the basement, you want to pull all the toys off the shelf. I wonder if there are too many um, on, on too many things available. And that makes your brain feel a little crazy inside. Mm-hmm. Too many options. And then mm-hmm. let's see. Too many options. Oh, yeah. And speak to how it, how you, you know, wonder. I wonder how that makes your brain feel inside. And then we can let the kiddos tell us how, how it makes them feel inside. Um, and they might tell us with words. They might show us with their bodies. They might run around in circles. <laughs> and if they run around in circles, then I think it's saying, oh, okay, maybe it's too much. Yeah. I'm going to put some of these toys away. I'm going to put them in a box. And every couple of days, I'm going to put out new toys for yeah. you. You know, we can do some toy rotations. Um, we can also get rid of those toys that light up. I'm not a big fan of Yeah, those. so let's talk um, about the types of tools for mm-hmm. play, like the types of toys yeah. that are, are sort of helpful to foster this type of play for mm-hmm. our kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really think toys that are simple, um, that you know don't that don't necessarily need to come with instructions, um, that invite the child's curiosity, and that the child can figure out multiple ways to play with that toy. Um, I think those are usually the best types of toys. Um, toys that light up. Uh, those toys are actually hyper-stimulating for the visual and auditory senses. Um, and they direct, they often do a lot of directing of the child's attention. Um, so they can, um, you know, promote uh, a lack of attention skills, actually. And um, the philosophy that we like to say is the more a toy does, the less your child does. Mm-hmm. And the less a toy does, the more your child does. Um, I like toys that children can manipulate and change. Um, for for young children, um, you know, children under two, we're looking at like, you know, things that twist and things that shake and, you know, musical instruments and blocks and things that build, things that they can knock over. Beading tools are a great, um, like another great tool for, for children. Um, a small kitchen set where the child can practice life skills um, is also important getting outside for all ages getting outside and jumping and running and moving and making mud pies and discovering worms and throwing rocks and climbing trees those are really important ways um, for our children to play notice how most of the things i'm saying aren't even really toys necessarily they can just be things that are around your house i mean i don't know about you but i know for us uh, we could have, I could have all the best toys in the whole wide world and an Amazon box comes in and that's all my son wants to play with. <laughs> well, totally. And I think that this is like a frustration of parents who, you know, make sure that mm-hmm. their kids have the latest gear and all the things, or they get all these toys or like, let's say Christmas morning and they've unwrapped all these presents. And then their kids like rolling around in the paper that came off the presents, you know, and it's just a, it's a shift in mindset to understand that less can be more. Yeah, absolutely. Less is more. I mean, I feel like that is just a general parenting in everything, not even just toys, but 
but really in general, less is more when it comes to raising our children. But yes, um, in terms of our in terms of our toys, if we you know are getting our child one thing, um, like like this year for example, we'll be getting um, Mateo a a kitchen set because he is really interested in what we're doing in the kitchen. I'm following his lead. I'm watching him. He hangs out with me in the kitchen every time I go in. He's really excited by the sifter and the mixing bowls. And he likes to, he's even practicing pouring water into his own cup. This is something that he has shown me over time that he's really interested in. Even when I bring him to my office, that's what he wants to play with. So it doesn't have to, it, 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 it doesn't need to be like an arbitrary toy because that's what every kiddo is getting. It can be something that your child is really showing interest in. And again, it kind of brings me back to that importance of child-led play and listening to our children through play. They are going to tell us exactly who they are, what they want, what they desire, what they need. If we just take a moment to sit back and do those three W's, watch, wait, and Mm -hmm. wonder. I love independent play with my kiddos and I love allowing them to take the lead. So I found that sitting back and just wondering and acknowledging commenting on what they're doing, working really hard to not give direction and interfere has been so helpful in fostering their creativity and their imagination and also allowing them to build up tolerance around things like frustration when the tower falls over or frustration when their brother takes a toy and they've got to sort out this situation. So take a little bit of a step back sink into your space and just be present and watch those kiddos as they play. Next up is the topic of coping with the mental load. And this was with Dr. Morgan Cutlip. Oh my goodness, we know. And with my Invisible Load series, I talk about all the time this mental load and how it weighs on us as parents and as mothers. This is such an important topic that comes up all the time when I'm speaking with moms is this imbalance in the load or maybe their partner's not understanding all that they carry and that they do in the background that's so hard to articulate and to put words to. For example, my son's starting back to school and still I'm thinking through my mind about all the stuff that I've got to put on the grocery list for his lunches. I need to make sure that he's got fall gear because it just decided to be fall here in Toronto all of a sudden. And there are so many things that maybe aren't physically seen, but that mentally and emotionally we carry as the primary caregivers of the home. In this episode, Dr. Morgan really hits the nail on the head with some tangible takeaways. Let's catch a part of that interview. Let's unpack for those who may not know when we say mental load, like what is it exactly that we're talking about? Yeah. So the mental load is kind of something that goes by many names. So um, sometimes this is called emotional labor or the invisible labor or the emotional load, but it's, it's basically like this invisible running list of to-dos that um, it's usually women, that women carry and manage in their minds um, how they just take care of all the things. So involved in some of the stuff with the mental load is things like managing the relationships in your home, managing the relationships outside of the home, um, planning things, researching. I mean, we spend 
I mean, I don't know. I spend countless hours researching things having to do with our kids and our marriage and all of these things. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's the organizing, it's the emotional support we keep tabs on and we provide to our family members and our kiddos. It's and it's all like the worry work too that is behind all that um, women and moms do. Yeah. And I know that when I work with, I do also quite a bit of couple work in person. And I know that when I work with couples, um, this is often something that comes up in the the parenting relationship and the relationship between the two of them, right? It's like maybe mom is more prone to research parenting styles or new techniques yes. or different things like that and just feels the burden of that load, but has a hard time kind of putting it into words or communicating it yes. to partner. And partner, if they're not inclined to think in that way has a really hard time understanding all of this invisible work, right? Yes. Yeah. One of the first suggestions I always give is is a preventative one because what usually happens is the mental load is really present just when you're first married, when you're first together as a couple. But then after you have kids, it just intensifies so, so much. So one of the things I always recommend is just watch out for these like subtle handoffs that start to occur in a relationship that don't mean that much in the beginning and one by one don't mean that much. But as the relationship continues, as kids get thrown into the mix, these agreements tend to pile up. So what am I talking about? I'm talking Mm -hmm, about things like um, you get invited to a party. Who does the RSVPing? Who buys mm. the present? Like who, who is responsible for reminding the other partner about the party? Or it's holidays. Who's researching, buying the gifts, mailing the gifts, getting the cards ready? You know, all these things that we might just pick up as not a big deal, but then suddenly start to become part of the norm in our relationship and what we're taking on as our responsibility, but we've never really discussed with our partners. So um, I always say, watch out for these little things that you're just taking care of without any discussion that just start to add up and become a big burden later on. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting that you say like it starts back to, we start to shape these norms in our relationship even before kids come along, yes, right? Totally. Yeah. yeah. And I know from research, um, you know, they find that women who do the best right after having a baby are the ones that throw their partners into the mix from the beginning. So that's just like another preventative piece is like, get, get them involved from the get-go. You know, Mm. the sooner that you can kind of let them figure it out, let them learn how to change a diaper, let your partner learn how to, you know, keep a, keep a baby entertained or, or wear the baby around the house, the, the better the moms ultimately will do in terms of just their emotional uh, well-being during that time. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because I've had, I'm coming off of a week full of clients this week, and I work with a lot of moms with postpartum depression or anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, and that handing over of, of baby to anyone <laughs> can be hard for moms initially, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Um, this baby feels like. Uh, like an extension of our body, like a little organ of ours. It's kind of still a part of us that people are yes. carting and carrying around. So it's not maybe, um, it doesn't maybe come naturally at first. You may have to work hard at at handing over that responsibility or letting partner get involved because 
it doesn't come naturally. Like you kind of want to keep baby. I know my experience. Like in the first few weeks, I just wanted baby to be all mine, right? Totally. Yeah. It's a super vulnerable thing to do. And with emotions and hormones and all the things just at an all-time high, it can be really challenging. But it's so important to kind of maybe maybe act a little bit differently than you're feeling in that moment because ultimately it's going to it's going to pay off both for the baby um to have a chance to bond with a partner but also for the mom's own emotional well-being. Yeah. Yeah. I have a um on Instagram I do an invisible load series. I do I know, one or I two a it. week. Yeah, and it is just one of those things that I get so much feedback on that I keep yeah. it going and I talk about different loads that we carry in different ways. So for example, we did a birthday party one, all the things involved in planning a birthday party <laughs> or all the things involved in prepping yeah. for Monday morning, you know, yeah. and oh the start gosh. of the week, or I just did a COVID related one and it's going kind of bananas right now because yes. there's such a unique load to dealing with this whole COVID situation. So like one of the strategies that I find really helpful, and this is why I'm trying to empower moms in this way, is to like, I put the load of this one seemingly, you know, small task yes. and I unpack all of the invisible pieces to that and put it on paper. And that's to one, validate moms that, hey, this is yes. a heck of a lot of work that you're carrying. And two, a lot of moms actually tag their partners on it to be like, hey, like this is all that's involved in, yes. in this task. And that's not to say that moms are responsible and should carry all of this load and do. That's unrealistic and it's not possible. And I think that that's why we're here having this conversation yes. right now is that we learn to delegate and how we learn to share in that load. Mm -hmm. But it's so important to be able to communicate and help your partner see your needs in sharing that, that burden or that load. Ugh, yes. I mean, that's that's one of the biggest pieces of how you handle this load is that you have to figure out ways to provide some context to your partner. Because I hear that all the time too, like the, the partners just don't quite get it. You know, like it's something as simple as you throw a birthday party check, you know, but when you unpack it, there are all these things that are involved in that, that are, that just kind of like multiply. So mm -hmm. yeah, giving context to what exactly the mental load looks like, what's involved, really spelling it out detail by detail is a really important piece of kind of working towards renegotiating some of the roles and responsibilities in, in the relationship really. Mm-hmm. And I know that when I actually asked my partner for help, Yes. He was more than willing to carry a part of that. Do you know what I mean? Totally. I was just like, I'm thinking back to like a birthday party that I was planning. And I, for all their first birthdays, I went kind of like crazy. And oh, it yeah. was really more for me than it was for them. And oh, for all yeah. the family. Like it was a whole <laughs> to do, right? Yes. And so for one, he's kind of like, you know, you took this on yourself. Like it didn't have to be this crazy. But yes. two, like I'm like, okay, <laughs> we need all the decor and the balloons and the cupcakes yes. and the this and the that and like all the things. So part of it was like, I felt like I, I had to do it or I wanted to do it oh my, my way. This is a yes. big thing that I deal with, with moms. It's like, well, big if big I delegate thing. it, it's going to create more work for me later because it's not going to get done 
the way that I want it to be done. You're so right. That's a huge part of it. So how how I kind of approach the mental load is I I really like to have like categories of things. So I approach it as um, you have to tackle the mental load from two places. The first is well, there's not a first or second. There's just two places to tack it from. One is the between. And so that's the between you and your partner, you and your significant other, and actually that relationship exchange and work that needs to be done there. But then the other is that you have to look at the within because we tell ourselves a lot of stories about what it looks like for somebody else to take things on, what the mental load looks like for us, that can sometimes be self-sabotaging. So Mm -hmm. I'm talking about things like, um, if I don't do it, no one will. Mm -hmm. Or if I don't do it, everything falls apart. Or it's easier for me to do it myself. Or I shouldn't have to ask him to do this. Right. And so these these stories can really get in the way of us successfully handing things off, you know, and of us feeling comfortable asking. Um, and and I think too, when you put these stories on repeat, it is like breeding ground for resentment towards your partner. Mm-hmm. So and like this, I shouldn't have to ask. Ugh. Like I hear that so often. Yes. And I'm sure at a point in my life, I used to say that. And I get so sort of like righteously angry about it now yes. because I feel <laughs> like media and society and expectations have painted this picture of relationships and love that like this person should just swoop in and do all the things and know all the things and yes. like, you know, uh, but they cannot read yeah. our minds. I know. Right? They cannot. Know. And like we are the keeper of our mm-hmm. needs. I feel like we could talk about the mental load and invisible load all day long in motherhood. If this is something that you feel the weight of and the responsibility of, I encourage you to keep an eye on my Instagram page. I try to post at least one or two invisible load posts a week, acknowledging different aspects of motherhood and all the weight and responsibility that comes with it. I have found that even things like the change of season that's upon us right now comes with such a load that I have to carve out space for and think about and anticipate. So keep an eye on my Instagram for that. Now it's time for our final interview. And this one actually wasn't aired too long ago, but has had a great amount of interest shown in it. And that is the episode with Dr. Cassidy Freitas, and it's about understanding scary and intrusive thoughts. Oh man, this is a big topic. Another one that is kind of feels taboo to talk about. And there's a lot of shame involved because these thoughts can be scary and they can be uncomfortable. But it's important for us to discuss them for a few reasons. One, to know that you are not alone. And two, because we have to bring these dark and scary thoughts into the light, into conversation, speak them out in order to disarm their power and normalize them, take away the fear or the grip that they have on us. So let's tune into part of my interview with Dr. Cassidy and you'll see why this is such an important conversation for us to be having as mothers. I was reading somewhere and I'm going to have to do my homework and find the source um, that a Canadian study had reported like 50% of new moms experience intrusive thoughts. Yes. 
it's it's really, really common and it is scary. And one of the most common questions I find that comes with it in in therapy when I'm talking with moms is, am I going crazy? Mm-hmm. Like, am I losing my mind? Do I want to hurt my baby? You right. know? Um, and I think that what you're highlighting here is that if these are distressing for you and if they are feeling counter your nature, then you know your nature, right? Like, right. like reassuring yourself that no, like that is, I always encourage clients to label it. Like, nope, that's an intrusive thought. No, that's my anxiety talking. Yes. And, I, and like, it is just a thought that doesn't mean I'm going to act on it. I don't have to act on it. You know, I have no intention to act right. on it. These types of things yep. um, to reassure that, no, you're not, you're not losing it as right. my moms would say, right? Totally. And here's the thing is that like our our brain is incredible. Like our brain has the ability to imagine so many different creative ideas and um, thoughts. And I mean, our the human brain has been the birthplace of so many inventions and like amazing, incredible things that people have just thought about in their mind and then, you know, we're able to to respond to that and create something. Our brains are incredible, but it's a double-edged sword because our brain can do, you know, imagine all these creative things and scenarios and ideas, but our brain can also show us, you know, some really distressing um, ideas or things that could happen. And our brain's job is to keep us safe, right? Like at the end of the day, like our brain is trying to keep us safe and the people that we love safe. And so sometimes in its effort to keep us safe, our brain is going to show us all of the potential possible threats. And Mm -hmm. that can be especially the case during postpartum. I don't know all of the science behind this, but I have read that when a new mom is, um, when they've looked at new moms and new dads, I'm assuming brains or birth support partners, when they look at their brains, what's actually been found in some of these brain studies is that the part of our the part of our brain, if I had OCD, the part of my brain that would be kind of like always firing. For someone who's postpartum or just recently had a baby, that same part of their brain is firing a little bit more <laughs> after they've had a baby. Even mm-hmm. even even if they've never been diagnosed with OCD before. And I think a big part of this is that from like an evolutionary perspective, you know, our ancestors who survived during this really vulnerable stage in life were the ones who were on high alert, you know, who were the ones that were always kind of scanning for threats and um, always kind of having safety and security in mind. And so it makes sense that you would have an increase in that sort of hypervigilance um, during and that sort of anxiety or those scary, distressing thoughts, images in postpartum. The challenge is that they're distressing and that we can feel a lot of shame around them. That can be um, a doorway into feeling, you know, depressed. Um, you know, obviously there are um, other conditions like OCD, anxiety disorders, panic disorders that can sometimes come with these thoughts. Um, mm-hmm. But you're right that even even parents outside of these mental health conditions 
can experience these thoughts. And there can also be an increase. I want to mention this too. If you had a traumatic birth, I mean, birth is a very intense experience. And, you know, we know that, um, there is a, a good chunk of, of new moms who experience birth trauma that can lend itself to those intrusive thoughts. Um, and so, you know, I think that, and sleep deprivation, my gosh, like if, I mean, I've, <laughs> you and I were talking before we started recording how I've been having a hard time sleeping, being so pregnant. And I mean, I, and I have experienced recently an increase in these intrusive thoughts. And I know it's a big part of it is related to the fact that I'm not sleeping very well. And that when you've had a, a new baby, like your sleep cycle is being impacted. So there's so many reasons why this is something that so many new parents are experiencing. But unfortunately, because of some of the stigma and because of how disturbing or distressing these thoughts are, they keep it to themselves. They don't reach out for support. They don't get the help that they need and deserve. And um, it can be a really, really painful experience. Yeah. Yeah. And you touched on something really important that maybe we can unpack a little bit is some of the the reasons why or some of the things that contribute to an increase in intrusive thoughts, right? Like, um, and can we get rid of them? This is something mm. or how do we get rid of them is a big question as well. Um, but some of the things that I see that shape kind of like an uptick in in these intrusive thoughts are even outside of postpartum, like when I've worked with other clients and teenagers and, mm-hmm. um, you know, across the lifespan are stressful events in life. Mm, yeah. Um, so like stresses, major transitions and change um, can be big triggers for them. Like you said, sleep deprivation, lack of sleep, uh, also depressive mood as well, right? Going through mm-hmm. bouts of depression can increase them. Do you, are there any others that come to mind for you? Oh, I mean, right now, um, as we're recording this, I mean, we're in the midst of a global pandemic. Um, there yeah. is, there has been a lot of stuff going on in the news. Um, and there, right now, I think the sort of caution fatigue from um, this the coronavirus that we're experiencing right now and just the things that we're seeing on the news and depending on our particular situations, they can have different levels of distress or um, right. concerns about our own safety. And so I think that, you know, kind of paying attention to you know, the different systems around us, right? So, um, you know, do I have a family history of anxiety? So looking at my family of origin, do I have a lot of support? Is there um, sort of like a silencing that happens in my family dynamics? Um, What about the world that's happening around me and during this time, right? Like, am I watching a lot of news? Is there a lot going on that's just going to increase that, like that little, that little part of you inside that's always kind of on guard and looking for threats is, is there a lot, is there stuff going on that's making that little part of you extra on alert, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think kind of paying attention to the context is, is really important. Yeah. Exactly. And that it's it's hopeful to know those things because we can also learn some of the factors that help us to lessen or tolerate or manage these thoughts, right? right. So do we get rid of intrusive <laughs> thoughts? I feel like that's the million dollar question. And oh. I, I would say that 
No, we don't no. get rid of them. Right? <laughs> right. Yes, Erica, you're right. And this is the this is the hard thing. Uh, it's so funny because I was just talking to my colleague, Dr. Christine Sterling, that I um, do. She's at OBGYN that I do my postpartum courses with. Um, yeah. She's my co-teacher in, the, in those. And we were just talking yesterday because we're working on um, an anxiety lesson to kind of support people in kind of just what we're talking about here, diving really deep into supporting people in being able to um, manage their anxiety. And she was like, we got to call this the anti-anxiety toolkit. You know, people want to get rid of their anxiety. And I was like, yes, I know that that is what people want. <laughs> right. Like, yes, yeah. and, and I know that's, that's also like, like if you hear that and you're like, yes, that is what I want. Like, pe- like people aren't really necessarily going to want something that's called like developing a new relationship with your anxiety <laughs> or like, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, this sort of thing. Um, but here, I think that there's actually, it's actually so powerful when we recognize that the more that we try to fight off and struggle with and like avoid anxiety or, mm-hmm. um, or these intrusive thoughts, right, that tend to be associated with anxiety, it actually leads to more, more anxiety. It's leads to more suffering. It leads to more of that sort of getting hooked by them. So instead, um, and I know it's not like as like, (laughs) it's not going to hook you as much as like the anti-anxiety toolkit, which we're probably going to call it that anyway, because that's what people want. And then, and then I can hit them with like, this is actually what's really going to help you here. Look at when we look at anxiety and we understand that as human beings, we are wired for it. Like it is, mm-hmm. it is there and it has a purpose. It has a job. Right. Anxiety's job is to keep us safe. And the intrusive thoughts or the scary thoughts that sometimes come with anxiety is your brain's way of trying to show you in its very, in all of its capabilities, unfortunately, um, that like what's what could happen, right? As a way so that you can try to plan and avoid or or keep you safe. The problem is that sometimes the way that anxiety delivers these messages is not helpful. And not everything that our brain tells us is a threat is actually mm-hmm. a true threat. Right. So if we can shift our I'm going to go there. If we can shift our relationship with anxiety to recognizing that it's part of what makes us human, we can actually accept it with some compassion for being part of our human experience and just being a part of us that's trying to keep us safe. And then we can be curious about the information or data that our anxiety or the intrusive thought is trying to point towards then we can kind of create some space between ourselves and that thought or that anxiety that allows us to say, to identify, okay, what in here is actually helpful? Like Mm. maybe, you know, if if my baby's been crying for a few hours and I'm having these intrusive thoughts of my baby dying or something awful happening to my baby or my baby not like stops breathing because they're doing that red face cry where they hold their breath or they're sneeze they have like um, mucus and I'm worried that they're gonna choke and not breathe okay so if I'm having those sort of intrusive thoughts if I take a moment to take my own breath <laughs> and slow down and take a look at the anxiety and the intrusive thought as something that's trying to show me um, to offer me data then I can more easily identify that, okay, 
while these images and all this ruminating in the, in the place that this like dark place that my brain is taking me, that's not actually helpful right now. But I do value safety and security. And maybe what I could do right now is put a call into the pediatrician and ask, right? Mm-hmm. Um, let them know what's going on and get some support around this. And I think that, you know, the more that we're able to find ways to create that space between ourselves and um, the anxiety that's showing us those distressing thoughts with curiosity, instead of trying to avoid or numb or just kind of like suffer and spiral into it, the more empowered we're going to feel to respond in a way that is going to be in alignment with our values, the things that are important to us. um, And it's going to lead to a lot less suffering. Yeah. And one of the things that I work with clients on a lot is helping them to see how the anxiety that they have or maybe the more high-strung temperament that they have or whatever um, has so many strengths and benefits to it, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So like if you are high anxiety, chances are you're very perceptive to shifts in emotion and – and in facial expressions and body language and really empathetic. And there are so many strengths that come with that. Mm. Yep. And it's, it's how we deal with the back end of that data, you know, that really (laughs) plays such a role. So like if I see the shift in emotion of my partner or my baby, and that's really like, that's a huge strength and skill to have. Not all people can pick up on those slight little, you know, cues. But then it's it's what we do with that data when we have it that is our kind of make it or break it, right? Yeah. If we- I have found that it's so important to find somebody that you trust to share intrusive thoughts with. That way you can feel comforted, connected around them, and know that you are not alone. Oh my goodness. It's been so much fun looking back over the top downloaded episodes. What an incredible year it has been. I feel so honored and grateful and appreciative and all the feels really, all the feels to have been able to grow and and be on this journey with you, to spend this time with you. As we reflect over the past year, I'm also so incredibly excited about what's coming up on the Happy as a Mother podcast and the year ahead many more topics, many more conversations here to serve you and support you on your motherhood journey. In order to celebrate this podcast anniversary, <laughs> I don't know what that even is. I totally made it up, but whatever. It's a birthday. It's an anniversary. It's a celebration. And in order to celebrate, I've teamed up with some of the amazing contributors that you've heard from today. Psyched Mummy, which is Dr. Asherina Reem, South Bay Mommy and Me, Brianna Kappa, Dr. Cassidy and her partner, Dr. Sterling, and My Love Thinks, who is Dr. Morgan Cutlip, have all contributed amazing resources combined into one supercharged bundle for you guys to assist you on your motherhood journey. These resources include Keeping Mummy in Mind from Psyched Mummy, My Parenting Roadmap, so the Motherhood and Fatherhood Roadmap, My Love Thinks Mental Load, Helping Couples Unite and Tackle the Mental Load e-course, South Bay Mummy and Me's 
how to discipline without yelling e-course as well as her playroom essentials guide and Dr. Cassidy and Dr. Sterling's flourish in the first year e-course. There is so much goodness wrapped up in this giveaway with a value of over a thousand dollars and we are going to award it to one lucky winner. So head to Instagram at underscore happy as a mother to read the contest rules on how to enter and you get tagged in and you get commenting away to get as many entries into this giveaway as possible. The winner will be drawn on Sunday this weekend. As always, I'm so grateful and appreciative that you tuned into today's episode and we welcome you back in a couple of weeks where we are going to be talking about how to tame tantrums using science. Can't wait to have you guys back. Talk to you soon. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. If you're looking for the resources and things that were discussed in today's show, you can find them in the show notes, which is linked in the episode description, or you can head directly to happyasamother.co slash podcast and find all of the show notes there. If you're looking for support and connection with other moms, you can head over to facebook.com slash groups slash happy as a mother and join our Facebook community. This community is filled with women just like you and I who want to support and uplift one another through our postpartum journey. And until next episode, mama, I want you to know, keep showing up. You're doing a great job.